Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. This is our LNAH daily version. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 19 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. A few hours ago, we heard a terrific podcast presentation about the coming ground invasion of Israeli troops into Gaza. The podcaster's name is Daryl Cooper and his podcast is called Mary Maid. Cooper talked to the Breaking Points website. His analysis and insights are first rate. Take a listen. Joining us now is Daryl Cooper. He's the host of the Martyr Maid podcast. He's also the co-host of The Unraveling with Jocko Willink. He's somebody I've been looking to in particular for analysis, analysis for education on this conflict since the hostilities began. So welcome to the show. It's really great to see you. It's great to talk to you guys. Been a big fan for a long time. Thank you, oh, Daryl. Really, very much appreciated. So, um, Daryl, can you just lay out one of the things that I have really found um, educational from you is a history of the Israeli military, the IDF, and its most recent engagements, both in the Lebanon and in terms of the past Gaza wars. What can we learn from past IDF activities about how this forthcoming invasion might go, what it will look like, and what are the actual military capabilities of the IDF, despite their you know, I think very big reputation for operational excellence. It's a well-earned reputation for operational excellence that they that they earned in wars, and this is important with with enemy Arab armies fighting Hamas in Gaza on their home turf amidst rubble and tunnels, or fighting Hezbollah in the, in the rubble of southern Lebanon is a much different task. And as we found out in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's it's a very difficult task to do in a way that doesn't provoke uh, such a backlash that it makes everything you're doing uh, counterproductive. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we ran into that problem very early on uh, in in Iraq after after the four Blackwater guys got lynched in Fallujah, and Bush sent in the Marines and kind of gave them a broad mandate to go retaliate and. Of course, if you tell Marines to go retaliate for something, they're going to strap on their helmets and go do it. And we destroyed that city. And it created a lot of animosity in Iraq so that by 2006, the Iraqi government was not prepared to allow us to do something like that again. And so my partner, Jocko, you know, he, he led uh, the, the, the SEAL unit that went into Ramadi with a totally different operational approach to counterinsurgency, where they went in block by block, worked with the individuals who, who lived in that city, who were under siege by these mostly foreign jihadists, and actually won them over in, in, in a long process. The difficulty the IDF's going to have is, is these are not foreign jihadists who have come over and are right. oppressing the people of, of Gaza. These are representatives of the Gazan people themselves, however widespread their, their support for Hamas militancy may or may not be. These are their cousins and brothers. And so the, the Israelis are not going to be able to, they're not going to be able to turn these people against their own in the same way we might have hoped to do with the Hearts and Minds campaign. It's extremely difficult. You know, in 2006 and in 2014, people tend to have even a one-sided perspective on how those conflicts went because at the end, Gaza was destroyed, Southern Lebanon was destroyed, the IDF had taken, you know, some casualties, but nothing that that jumps off the page. And so it looks like it was just a one-sided beatdown, but that's actually not what happened. 
when the IDF went into southern Lebanon in 2006, they found that Hezbollah was was prepared for that kind of a fight. And Hezbollah innovated a lot of tactics. They got right up close and grabbed the belt buckle of the IDF in order to mitigate Israel's uh, close air support, their artillery, their rocket fire, things that that, that Hezbollah really didn't have any uh, ability to, to defend themselves against without air defense. Well, in 2014, you know, nobody really thought that, that Hamas had that kind of military capability. Um, after 2006, you know, I used to work in Israel a lot. I'd go there and work with the IDF on and, and contract personnel on, on their air defense issues. And after 2006, they... They were never going to make that mistake again of underestimating Hezbollah. They they understood they were dealing with a real military threat. But I always found in the 10 years or so that I would go over there for work that uh, they continued to underestimate Hamas. And even in 2014, hmm. when they went in and had the exact same thing happen, really, Hamas employed the same tactics, tunnels, pop-up ambushes, uh, IEDs, of course, everywhere. And the Israelis got stalled in, in Gaza City and had a really hard time. And they eventually just pulled back and kind of destroyed whole sections of the city from the air. And that invited, uh, you know, outrage among the people in Gaza. And it invited outrage uh, in the international community. And so as we go into this situation, you know, th those two experiences are definitely, I can tell you for a fact, are definitely front of mind for the Israelis and their military planners. The, the, a lot of their boosters overseas can rah-rah the IDF and, and just sort of focus on their, their capabilities when they're at full strength, and they are considerable. But the people who are actually planning this assault, uh, they understand this is a very, very risky operation. It's going to be very difficult. Hmm. Well, and Daryl, you said something to the effect of, like, it's going to be difficult not to avoid a backlash. But, I mean, in a sense, hasn't that ship already sailed? I mean, they've already hit... They've already decimated something like 42% of Gaza, hit 7,000 target, targets. There's thousands of civilians killed. The whole population is under a complete siege. You know, no water, no fuel, no electricity, no food, et cetera. So hasn't that ship already sort of sailed? Yeah. And, you know, in the dozen or so years that I, I you know, I probably made, in about 12 years, I probably made 20, 25 trips to Israel to work in my capacity as a, as a DOD engineer. And... I would talk to the people there. I had friends there. Um, I would talk to the other military personnel and, and contract personnel. And what I noticed over the course of the time I would go there, and this was maybe from 2007 until uh, about 2019, is that the appetite for peace among the people I was talking to was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And they were becoming much more radical, much more dehumanizing in their language toward the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And much more convinced that there is no, there's no way forward in this situation other than violence. And that's very discouraging because you see that on display right now. And this is something that we've, we've always seen with Netanyahu's governments, you know, where for years, Israel, look, Israel for decades, people need to understand they've been, they've been dealing with attacks, not at, not at this scale of the one that recently happened, but just as brutal and just as savage. They've been dealing with this stuff for decades. And we need to understand that over here. It is different than, than anything any other, any Western country can really understand. Like when you go back to the late seventies and early eighties, these kind of brutal attacks, families killed, were, were happening on a monthly basis sometimes, mm -hmm. sometimes. And so we have to keep that in mind. 
And yet the Israeli governments back then were always caught. They never looked at this as, you know, they, 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 would, they would have targeted assassination campaigns to go after PLO officials uh, and, and militants. They would take out specific people who were planning attacks. It was, this was, this was an intelligence and special forces led situation. And ever since Netanyahu's come in, he's just looked at the Palestinian issue as a job for the regular military. It's a job for the artillery corps and the air force. And you just can't fight a war like this, uh, like that, unless you're willing to go completely medieval in a way that is not, it's not acceptable in the modern world. Not if you want a seat at the table of, of, of modern first world countries. And it's the dilemma that Israel's in because, because the faction around Netanyahu you know, the very the very kind of dirty little secret. And it's not much of a secret in Israel. People talk about this much more uh, openly. There's a lot of lot of issues like this that people are actually more open and nuanced about in Israel than you find when you when you talk to a lot of their boosters overseas. Yeah. And that's you know, I, look, I understand why uh, people got upset when when Israel came in for criticism so early after this attack. Because you know, I told Jocko when we were talking that Israel, one of the problems that they had that they had to solve was that they're on the clock right now. Because what's going to happen is right now everybody is sympathetic toward the Israelis. But after a couple weeks of only seeing Palestinian babies being pulled out of the rubble, uh, th those memories are going to fade and they're going to be replaced by these newer ones. And people are going to start to put pressure from around the world on Israel to, to wrap this up. And Israel really didn't even get from, from the general public and in, in the rhetorical space, even a week or two to really operate with impunity. And I think that's a step forward because of the way Netanyahu's governments have, have acted in the past. But I understand, uh, you know, I didn't want to hear any criticism of American foreign policy on September 12th, 2001. Uh, half our country was looking to you know, George Bush had a 90% approval rating, and we were looking to kick somebody's butt around the world. I understand that the feeling and the mentality. And yet, no serious discussion of 9-11 can happen without talking about America's imperial foreign policy. And no discussion of the Israel-Palestine conflict or even the attack that happened recently. And I understand it's a, it's a tough needle to thread. But, but even of the attack recently, no serious discussion can be had about that without coming back to one basic fact. And that is that millions of Palestinian people have lived under military occupation for almost six decades. That is not, it is simply an untenable and unacceptable state of affairs that cannot go on. And everything else, that, that, that's the context that every discussion about this issue will eventually come back to. Mm -hmm. You know, these people are stateless refugees. They're subject to search and arrest without due process. Their skies and their roads are patrolled by a foreign military. You just imagine that. Their lawful land, the land everybody agrees is theirs. Um, you know, the whole international community and Israeli law as well continues to be colonized by heavily armed, often hostile and fanatical Israeli settlers. You know, most of those settlements, again, are illegal, even according to Israeli law. And yet they continue to expand, and Palestinians who resist their expansion end up on the business end of the Israeli defense forces. Gaza is surrounded by a wall that is patrolled by remote-controlled machine gun robots. And that's not 
I'm not joking. That, that's, this is a reality. Surrounded by a wall patrolled by remote con remotely controlled robot machine guns pointed inward toward the inmates. You know, I Israel controls how much water, how much power, how much food and medicine and construction materials are allowed into Gaza. In, in, in 2018, thousands of unarmed Palestinian protesters were shot by snipers for protesting too close to the border fence. The, the initial orders that the Israeli snipers had were shoot, was shoot anybody who came within 300 meters of the fence. Eventually they got reduced to 100 meters, but thousands and thousands of people, unarmed people were shot. There are videos of, wow. there, there, there's a video of a man in a wheelchair being shot. There are kids, women, medical personnel. And so these are the things that these people are dealing with. And you can say that the Palestinians deserve it or the Israelis have no choice anything you want. But when violence occurs, I think there is a sense in which the, 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 the party that the power that, that, that is in charge of them, that, that's the, the occupying power always bears at least some of the primary responsibility. <clears throat> and look, I'm not playing holier than now. Okay. My country, America has destroyed whole nations for criminal reasons in the last few decades. Uh, if Israel's occupation was ended, the settlers were repatriated to Israel and the Palestinians formed a state along the borders agreed to by everyone except for Israel right now. Maybe they would still be violent and then we could have a totally different conversation, a different conversation altogether. But that's not the situation. Yeah. You know, in this reality, a superpower is keeping millions of stateless refugees under permanent military occupation. And that is the context in which everything else takes place. And discussions of the conflict will always come back to that basic fact as long as the occupation continues. I feel compelled, Daryl, to just be like, this is, we're not talking to a big lib here. You know, we're not talking to, even though some of this uh, may be often, uh, I think rhetorically would remind someone, I don't know, of like a Noam Chomsky. Can, or can, I, just, can, I, can I address that very quickly? Sorry. Please. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm certainly not a big lib. Uh, some yeah. people have said my politics are off to the right of Attila the Hun, and that's probably true in a sense. Uh, but a lot of it's context, you know, I'm used to talking to Americans and Americans have only ever throughout their entire lives ever heard one side of this story. Mm -hmm. And so I end up trying to tell them the other side of the story and show them the other perspective. And that often means that when, when I talk about this issue, I'm coming off as if I'm one-sidedly sympathetic to the Palestinians. And that's definitely not the case. You know, Israel is a great country. Israel... The, the, these people uh, carved a, a, a prosperous country that is safe, even for their Arab residents, uh, and, and is a is a pleasant place to live. If you had to live in the Middle East, Israel's probably the place most people would choose to go, and they deserve a lot of credit for that. Isra Israelis are great people, uh, and Israel's a great country, and they're an ally of the United States. But because they are all of those things, that's why I care more about what they do and how they yeah. behave. I understand. You know, these are our guys. These are our these are our people. And, yeah. and you know, I cared a lot more about the Abu Ghraib prison torture scandal and the conduct of US troops there than I cared about the heinous behavior of Al Qaeda in Iraq throughout the mm -hmm. entire war. Because those are my guys. And I and I the the Israelis, you look, you want to be part of the West, part of the civilized democratic first world countries, there, you have to conduct yourself in a certain way. And I understand that you're in 
that, that you're in a pretty unique situation. But that's the thing about principles is unique situations don't get to excuse them. That's yes. right. Daryl, I want to ask you about what the future scenarios might look like, what you think is most likely. From where I stand, I see the United States very much prepared for a broader regional war and basically resigned to it. They think it's going to happen. You very aptly have pointed out what actual war with Iran is going to look like. Um, based upon everything that you've seen, the current incursion, the tanks going into Gaza, it seems like some invasion of that is likely, which means some sort of backlash is likely. Just based upon your experience and all that in the, in the region, the current context, and also Hamas response, the U.S. and all that, what do you see as the most likely scenarios to play out? I think that based on the weapon systems that we've been sending over there, we are... Uh, we're probably looking to deter intervention by Hezbollah and primarily Hezbollah, but but Iran also, uh, as Israel goes in and and things start to get more intense during the ground invasion. I people need to understand that that a war against Iran, a general war in the Middle East, uh, this is it would not this would not be a war that went the way the Iraq war went. And that's not to say that the United States, if we went into total war, you know, World War II mode, couldn't defeat Iran. Of course we could. Uh, but that's not really the it's not really a useful conversation. You know, mm -hmm. all of the bases in Kuwait and Qatar and Bahrain that we use to stage our invasion of Iraq, where for six months, seven, eight months ahead of time, we were flying in all our tanks and they're all sitting right there. Those are all within easy reach of tens of thousands of Iranian missiles and rockets. They would all come under fire. The the, the U.S. embassy in Iraq would probably be overrun. Uh, this the the Saudi oil fields would probably would probably go up in flames, and the Gulf itself would, in the Straits of Hormuz would become unsafe for shipping. It, it, this is a this is a nightmare scenario, and everybody needs to understand that uh, this is not uh, something we should be looking forward to or cheering for at all. One question I had for you is, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric from the Netanyahu government and there's a lot of reporting about U.S. officials reacting to this idea that they don't really have a plan for what comes after the ground invasion. You know, they have this stated objective, which I don't even think they really believe of rooting out Hamas. I don't actually think that they believe they can accomplish that. As you and Jocko have pointed out, their actions thus far are not really aimed at accomplishing that. I think what's happening now is more just about, you know, retribution and giving the Israeli public what they want to see as a result of Hamas's horrific attacks. Do you actually buy that they don't have a plan? Because it's not like Netanyahu and his allies haven't had a lot of thoughts about what they would ideally like to do with regard to Gaza, what they would ideally like to do with the West Bank. It's not like they haven't laid out in detail how they would push Palestinians out of their land or, you know, subjugate them with a second-class citizen status or, you know, imprison them, et cetera, and completely annex their territory. And Netanyahu was at the UN with a map of Israel that didn't include Gaza or the West Bank whatsoever. So do you think that they really are as clueless as they're kind of playing for the cameras right now? You know, not not entirely, simply because, and this sort of goes to the to the question people have been asking about how this could have happened from an intelligence failure standpoint. How could such a such a scaled attack involving so many people have slipped beneath the notice of some of the world's most most capable intelligence agencies and one of the most heavily surveilled uh, strips of land in the world? And I think part of the answer to that is that Netanyahu. He would he would like to just ignore Gaza. 
He kind of looked at Hamas as they could, you know, they can pop up out of a tunnel somewhere and 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 kidnap an Israeli soldier, and we can deal with that. But they're not any kind of a of a large scale military threat that we really have to take seriously. And Netanyahu wanted to focus on the West Bank and expanding settlements and continuing to make the two state solution there untenable by creating facts on the ground. And he wanted to kind of ignore Gaza. And there are, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about this in the past, but. The faction around Netanyahu has always been quite open, at least when they're talking to other Israelis, about the fact that Hamas, as an opponent of the two-state solution, is an unsavory ally of people like Netanyahu, Mm -hmm. as as, as much as they... Not saying they support these people or they're sending them weapons or anything like that, but, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu to the Israeli Knesset, A quote from him, he said, anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. It's impossible to reach an agreement with them. Everyone knows this. And he's talking about Hamas here, but we control the height of the flame. This is, this is, the way a lot of the people around Netanyahu look at Hamas, um, you know, they, they, and, and others who are critical of Hamas, have, uh, are critical of Netanyahu, like Ehud Barak, have, have criticized the Netanyahu faction yes. for this position. And so in a lot of ways, I think just, just, just the same way that we have thought that we could get away with funding jihadist groups around the world to fight wars that the American people were not going to agree to, uh, to send American troops to go fight. And those groups eventually came, you know, the Frankenstein's monster eventually turned on its creator and uh, and and came back on us. There's an element of that with Hamas. You know, Hamas didn't arise in a vacuum. The And this is something that a lot of people don't understand, I think, in the West is people think of this as like a centuries or millennia old religious war, and it is not. This is that, that makes it seem intractable, and it feeds mm-hmm. people on both sides who say there's no solution but violence. But I've got a I've got a photograph uh, f- from a cafe in Jerusalem from 1913, the year before the First World War started, and it's a picture of a band playing for the patrons in the cafe, and the band consists of two Muslims, a Jew, and a Christian. Hmm. This is in 1913, and this would not have been abnormal in 1913. This conflict is only about a century old, and it is a political conflict over disputed territory. That's it. You know, we can bring all the religious considerations into it. Maybe that intensifies the complexity of the uh, emotions uh, relative to other disputes. But at the end of the day, it's a dispute between two groups of people laying claim to the same piece of land. And that's it. Daryl, I just want to say I appreciate your input so much. Um, we're going to keep listening. Martyr Made podcast. Do you have anything else you want to play? I know you've got a Substack. I think Martyr Made Substack as well. He's got a 25-hour something series on the background yeah. of all of this, which I could not recommend more. Same. Um, you know, you've got book recommendations. You've got a lot of stuff. Such a wealth of knowledge and information. Uh, I would love to have you back, and we just can't appreciate you enough. Thanks. Um, yeah, there is the Substack, uh, and I would just, I guess, ask everybody – to remember that on both sides, um, as much as as much as it might not seem like it, depending on who you're listening to, 99% of the people on both sides are just regular people. And Thank that, you. That's, that's the I, I've been to the West Bank. 
I've talked to a lot of these people. I'm friends with a lot of these people. I hear from them in emails. These are just people. And if you met them, they could be your neighbors. And those are the people who are involved in this conflict. So, you know, the, the, the extremists in any conflict like this have a way of pulling everyone else down to their level. Don't let that be you. Great. Fantastic point. Yeah. Fantastic. Most important thing to keep in mind cool. here. Thank oh, you, sir. Thank you so much. Great to chat with Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. That was Daryl Cooper, and that's it for this edition of the LNAH Daily Podcast. And we wish to thank BreakingPoints.com.